Welcome back, everybody. It is Encounter with God time here on The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, which means that we are about to get into our 20 million movement Bible study. Isaiah chapter 13 is where you need to start heading right now to be ready for uh, what we're about to to dig into. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13 and uh, the fall of Babylon. Okay, so let's talk about the fall of Babylon. We were talking about the fall of Babylon yesterday. Did we talk about the greatness of Babylon yesterday? We talked about the fact that it was going to become one of the greater empires. We yes. didn't really talk about it being great. Right. Let's now talk about what... I forgot the... the we talked the about system. Greece becoming great when it seemed a bit ridiculous because it was so small. Yeah, we did, we did, we did, we did. Okay, so... Uh, the Bible is going to go on and talk about Babylon, and Isaiah is going to talk about how Babylon is going to become nothing. Yes. Literally nothing. Like nothing. <laughs> nothing, nothing? <laughs> nothing, nothing. Just uninhabited wasteland. Yeah. Okay, which is, you know, when you stop and think about it, we've got a bunch of cities in our world that have been around for a very, very long time. Mm. You know, Jericho has been there, what, for 4,000 years? Yeah. Jerusalem has been there for. Probably three and a half Ages. thousand years. Yeah. Rome has been there for twenty seven hundred years. You know, Athens, Corinth would there's be some old places. There's some really, really old cities. Mm. Alexandria in Egypt, you know, Cairo, some of these Egyptian cities have been there for just thousands of years. Mm. And they've been great cities, and some of them still are great cities in many respects. Mm. And yet Babylon grew to be the greatest city in the ancient world. Mm. Mm -hmm. So this is a city and land area that covers three times, it's three times the size of Rome. Which is significant. Oh, yeah. You look at at the empire that Rome ruled over. And, you know, probably the second largest empire, we mentioned that yesterday, that the world has ever seen. And this is a city that, that grew to that level. Mm-hmm. The other thing about this city was its incredible defences. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a city that probably the only city that could be compared to it as far as defences goes would be Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Constantinople had similar defences, and Constantinople was never conquered. Its defences were never breached until the invention of firearms and cannons. And they built cannons to bring down, you know, the walls of Constantinople that had a bore four feet across, <laughs> yeah, 1,200 millimetres across. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's like the world's largest board gun ever built. You know, of, of all time. This is like massive. This would take days just to load the thing. Mm. And so that was the only way that Constantinople was ever taken because, you know, Constantinople had walls that were a similar size to the walls of Babylon. It had double row walls just like Babylon had. It had, you know, water supply. It had everything that it needed to be able to withstand a siege. And Constantinople stood for 1,100 years mm. without being conquered until they invented gunpowder. Yeah, yeah. And it was such a significant event when Constantinople was taken that the Bible actually mentioned it in prophecy. 
Okay, so then you've got Babylon. Now Babylon has you know it has the double row walls. It has a a an an outer wall that was so wide and so thick you could hold chariot races on top of the wall. Isn't that incredible? Like- yeah, so you're going to go and beat this wall down. Yeah, you're going to build a battering ram and beat it down. And uh, well, what's going to happen if you do? Well, first of all, you're going to have a hard time beating it down because you're going to go through a lot of soldiers that are going to get killed in the process mm-hmm. of operating that battering ram. When you've got you know Babylonians up on top of the walls throwing whatever they feel like down on top of you the whole time because it's going to take you weeks to get through it. Yeah, to get through it. And then when you get through it and you go pouring through the breach in the wall, guess where you find yourself? Another wall. Another wall. <laughs> How frustrating. Yes. Yes, another wall. Behind yeah. that wall, there's another wall. <laughs> and, then, and then you've got – and then you basically – what you find yourself is trapped in a kill zone. Mm, it's a kill yeah. box. What it is, is a kill box. Yeah, how do you get out of that? Yeah, exactly. Good luck. Good luck really. Yeah, that's right. So now you're going to build another battering ram, mm. you know, and you're going to try and work your way through the next one while you have just – you're in a kill box now. No, nah, it's not going to happen. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Talking about, you were talking, talking about... Talking about Babylon and yes. the might of Babylon and the size... And the okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, the biggest, the biggest challenge with any city mm. in the ancient world was water supply. Yeah. All ancient cities were built around a water supply. Yeah. And, of course, um, if you had an uncertain water supply, then you were in great danger. Or if the... If the enemy could cut you off from your water supply, mm-hmm. you were in great danger of being captured. Absolutely. And this is one of the you know fantastic um, aspects of Jerusalem that made it such a powerful fortress was that it was a mountaintop city with a water supply inside the walls. Mm. And this, of course, was what you know the ancients would always try and do was would be to secure a water supply inside the walls, and a water supply you know that would be able to provide you know for the needs of the population. Well, with Babylon, uh, when they came to build Babylon, they're like, well, you know what we're going to do here? We're just going to uh, let's see, let's figure out a water supply. Well, what we'll do is we will run the entire river Euphrates straight through the middle of our city. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one of the greatest rivers in the world. Yeah. And like, yeah, we'll just run the whole thing through the middle of our city. Mine. <laughs> it's like, we're never going to run out of water. And yet. Uh, and mm. yet. And yet. And yet. Okay, let's hold on to that thought for just a moment. And so they ran, the, the, they ran the, the river through the middle of the city. They ran the walls all the way around mm. so that went across the river. Yeah. They had a bridge in the middle that went across the river. They had a tunnel that went underneath. It was, um, I think, the only under-river tunnel that existed anywhere in the world until they built one under the Thames in the late 1800s. Which is amazing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you think about the uh, engineering challenges and how long it took them to build the tunnel under the Thames. Mm-hmm. It took them like two years and a bunch of people drowned and it kept trying to collapse on them, you know, and yeah. the story goes on and on and on. And it was seen as being a marvellous feat. Well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar built one Dozens of years two before. and a half thousand yeah. years before that <laughs> under the river Euphrates, not just the Thames, mm. the Euphrates. Mm. You know, there's a pretty spectacular feat of engineering right there. And so you've got this... Um, You've got this incredibly well-fortified city, and yet God says it's going to come to nothing. You know, look at Constantinople. It's a great city to these days. Mm-hmm. 
pride of the Turks, Turkish nation. Um, it's still there. Babylon's not. Bible said Babylon would disappear, become nothing. It would it would vanish away. And so if we look at our prophecy today, there's a whole bunch of verses about that. Uh, let's look here. Um, one of the verses that we didn't get to yesterday was Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 16. Isaiah 13 and verse 16. But, you know, as we consider Babylon, and you go there today, you might find a, a, a few Iraqi uh, villages that are sort of hanging around the place. Mm. And the Americans had a base there for a while. Um, but nobody's ever rebuilt the city. I'm reading this verse? Yep. Okay, so Isaiah 13, verse 16. Oh, it's pretty hectic, actually. Yeah, this is um, slightly off topic from what I was talking about, but we need to talk about it. Okay. So, their little children will be dashed to death before their eyes. Their homes will be sacked. Their li- their wives will be raped. Oh. This is pretty heavy, isn't it? Mm. Okay. Should we give us some context for that? So, some, so, so some, well, this is, this, is, this is dealing with, you mm. know, what's going to happen to Babylon. Yeah. This guy's judgments on Babylon. Um, so there's going to be some innocent people that are going to suffer. Yeah. Uh, how how do we understand this action by God? I was actually going to ask you this because... I'm glad I got in first. No, no, because the, the next verse says, Look, I will stir up the Medes against Babylon. They cannot be tempted by silver or bribed, by gold, or bribed with gold. This is actually a massive question of how much responsibility God takes for things. And particularly these sorts of verses. Yeah. Okay, and and there's a, there's a, of course a lot of debate that goes backwards and forwards over this issue. You know, um, does God act here in a punitive way? And when He acts in a punitive way, is God persecuting the innocent? Hmm. So how would you answer that, Lyle? What are your thoughts? I asked the question first. I chucked it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first of all, um, we need to understand that while people will be debate back backwards and forwards, you know, does God does is is this you know is this God you know stepping in and doing this, or is this kind of the natural results of what happens when you turn away from God? Mm. And people get quite heated about this. And some people are like, no, God would never do that. This is the natural results of what happens when people turn away from God. And uh, others would say, well, no, God does. They get quite just as heated. God does step in here and do something and, 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 and do this himself. I would say that both of those arguments are kind of missing the point. Because God is all-powerful. Mm. So that some particular point there is either an act of commission or an act of omission. Either way, there is an act. Yeah. And either way, at the end of the day, God stands back and um, holds responsibility for what happens on this earth. And this is where a lot of people get really upset at God. Mm-hmm. So why does God step back and allow these things to happen? That's an act of God for him to step back and allow. And I fully go with the the, the concept here that these people have turned to idolatry. Um, they have turned away from God. They have had some of the greatest opportunities to turn to God that any nation has ever had. They've had a prime minister for decades who was a follower of God. They had an emperor 
Nebuchadnezzar himself, who was converted and became a follower of God. There is very strong evidence that Amal Marduk, his son, may also have been a follower of God. Hmm. And so, and, and, and they've been inhabited by God's people. God's people have been living there amongst them, being a constant witness to them. And so you have to kind of ask yourself the question, well, you know, why is it that, um, you know, why is it that God sort of holds back here and all these terrible judgments come? Well, we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Yes. Okay, so let's, let's step back for a moment and look at the big picture because the only way you can understand the innocent suffering is by understanding the big picture. Mm. Sin comes to the universe. The universe is ruled by love. Therefore, God has an agenda to eradicate sin because sin is the opposite of love. Mm. Uh, we could use the word evil. Evil is a word that is more palatable to, for some reason, to uh, secular people. They don't like talking about sin, though, but they do like talking about evil. So let's talk about evil. Evil comes to the universe. God wants to get rid of evil because God is a God of love and he wants his universe to run on the principle of love. He doesn't want evil to exist. So he has the choice of, okay, we could wipe out Satan right here on the spot. Uh, the whole universe has been serving God from love. Hmm. The moment that God just, you know, vaporizes Satan, so to speak, uh, what on what basis is the universe now serving God and obeying God? We're out of fear. Out of fear. Like, oh, just like that. In one move. If, God we, is, if we do that, he'll do the same to us. We're just gone. Exactly. Mm. In one move, God has eradicated love. Mm. Love has ceased to exist in one simple move. So God can't do that. The other option he could do was like, Okay, Satan, uh, you think you're going to have re- you're going to rebel? I will just manipulate your mind, mm. and I will use mind control, and you will love me, and you will obey me. Okay, can you use mind control to make somebody yeah, love still you? That's not love. That's not love. Mm. That's a robot. Mm. My computer can tell me it loves me. <laughs> hey Siri. Yeah, exactly. Do you love <laughs> tell me? Tell me you love me. <laughs> tell me you love me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, no, that's not going to. True though. Uh huh. Uh huh. Mm. Um, and so that wouldn't solve the problem either. Mm. So God can't wipe out Satan and he can't eradicate the power of choice because either of those options is going to get rid of love. So the only option that God has to actually get rid of evil is to allow evil to exist so that people can see what evil is and make up their own minds. Mm. And you don't truly understand evil. In fact, it's impossible to really understand evil until the innocent suffer. Mm, yeah. Because when the guilty suffer, you can say, well, they kind of deserved it. Mm-hmm. But when the innocent suffer, it's like, okay, that's the result of evil. Now I get it. Mm. Now I don't want to have anything to do with it. Now I'm going to make that decision that I'm just never, ever going to go there. Yeah. Uh, and so this is why God allows evil to exist. And this is why God allows the innocent to suffer because it's the only way that God can actually get rid of evil. Which is a really hectic concept. It is. Yeah. and it's, it's a perfect plan, but it's a hectic concept. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, as you, I think, mentioned in our last segment, 
um, you know, encounter with God. If we look, oh, just look at the book of Daniel, right? Just take only King Nebuchadnezzar. You see a God that is working for this man's heart. Yes. You know, he's the one who gets this dream. He then has, yeah, Daniel comes. He becomes this, I guess, yeah, president, prime minister kind of figure for years. He becomes almost like he starts acting as a beast. You know, for seven years, he's kind of just this wild man. God holds his kingdom. And I think this is interesting. It's like this is one man that God was like, what can I do to make you understand? I send you people. I send you dreams. I send you prophecies. And you've made your decision. But I'm like, there is no way God's doing that for one person and no one else in that city. Do you know what I mean? Like, No, no, so no, no. At, yeah, absolutely. As, so as you were saying, it's not like this is just a once-off God's like, oh, I'm going to take him out. It's like this is this has gone bad. Like you guys are going, you, you've got a bent towards evil now. And there's a point that God goes, it's almost like allowing evil to show how evil something is. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, well, I don't know. I know as a human... It's when I experience the consequence of my actions that I'm like, oh, bad, not good. Uh-huh. You know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that could just be, oh. That didn't pan know, out. Something simple. Sim- like on a super basic level, I went to bed late too. I woke up tired. Yes. Really doesn't affect life. But you do something that hurts someone else that you care for, ooh, that sucks. Then you have like this situation of we've been living a pretty depraved society and now someone worse is coming in and showing us how bad that actually can be. Oh, does that make sense? Like, uh-huh. And it sucks, yeah, because you read it and you're like, this is terrible. And God's like, yes, yes, it is. Understand and turn to me. Like how many times has God just like, I, I don't want people to die. Turn to me and live. Choose the life option. Okay, now think about Nebuchadnezzar, mm. that whole story right there. Mm. How public Ooh, yeah. was his insanity? Oh, Seven years. Everyone would have had to know. The entire empire and basically every nation outside of the empire would have known about this because this is unprecedented. The guy's gone off his rocker. He self-identifies as a cow. Mm. Um, The Bible calls that insanity. When you self-identify as something, you are not biologically. Just throwing that out there. Um, So he self-identifies as a cow and lives as a cow for seven years. The entire – and – and – Nobody else comes and sits on the throne during this period. Yeah. It's bizarre. It's the most bizarre thing. This is the greatest empire, the greatest city that the world has ever seen. It is the greatest of the greatest of the great. Then he regains his sanity to the point that he regains his empire. Yeah. Okay. What? So good. Tell Tell me that the whole world doesn't know about this. Yeah. And then having regained his sanity, he ascribes all the mm. glory to Yahweh. Yeah. Tell me the whole world doesn't know about this. Mm-hmm. Right? It's no wonder that when, you know, on the night before Babylon falls to the Persians, mm. Daniel stands in front of Belshazzar and says, you knew all this. Mm. And... Having known all this, because you saw it, he was he was a, an eyewitness to it. Belshazzar was an eyewitness to Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. Yeah, he was he was a young kid at the time. Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, with his grandfather, he's like, even though you knew all this, you didn't turn around and serve God, but you served the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone, which don't speak, which don't hear, which don't do anything. Yeah, you rebelled. And you cut yourself off from God. And now you're about to suffer the results of this is what happens 
when you live your life outside of God. And so if God does not allow these things to happen, how would we ever know what the result of living outside of God is? Mm. How would we ever know what rape was or what innocent children being killed was unless God allowed evil to exist? And because that isn't God saying you have to do this, that's God allowing you to make the choice. That's right. Mm. And God reached out to the Babylonians with so much evidence mm. and so much persuasion. I mean, He went further for this nation that it feels like than any other nation. I'm sure He didn't, but it kind of feels that way when you read the story because it's so well recorded. Yeah. And yet, when they turned away from it, it's like, well, th- this is your choice, mm. and this is what happens. When you push me out of the picture, you push me out of the picture, you let Satan take control. And this is what Satan loves to do. Okay, mm. now you want to have Satan in control? I told you what will happen. You don't believe me. Now you've let him be in control. You're actually going to see it, and I'm not going to intervene. And this is the thing I think in we're reading Isaiah, he's talking about Babylon well before this actually happens. Exactly. Right? So he's exactly. Like, I'm giving you the heads up. I'm giving you all the information I possibly can before you have to get to that point. That's right. It doesn't need to get there. And we know that the 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 the, uh, the, the copy of Isaiah existed in Babylon. The Jews had it there. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. It is come time for question of the day. Okay, the question today is, is penal substitution biblical? Okay, so there's probably a bunch of people out there who are asking the question, what on earth are you talking about when you talk about penal substitution? So I thought we'd begin with a bit of a definition of terms here. Sounds good. A bit of a theological um, phrase that we have. So penal substitution argues that Christ, by his own sacrificial choice, was punished or penalized in the place of sinners, Substitution, Mm -hmm. so he died in our place, thus satisfying the demands of justice so that God can justly forgive our sin. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit like the example of, you know, to, to, uh, to use an illustration of an early governor who has a problem with. Um, theft in his community brings in mandatory sentencing, 40 lashes for anybody who is caught stealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the time comes when the first person is caught stealing it. It turns out to be his very elderly mother. Entire community turns up to see what is going to happen. What kind of a governor do they have? Is he a governor who is going to uh, sort of let his mother off because you know she's part of the family? Mm. Is he is is he going to be a bit corrupt that way, or is he heartless yeah. and going to whip his mother? It's going to kill her. Mm. She's not going to survive that. Um, and so is he heartless or is he corrupt? And he's between a rock and a hard place. The day comes, you know, they lead the old lady out. She was caught red-handed. There's no argument as to what happened. And before she's led to the scaffold, the governor steps forward and the governor takes off his shirt, takes off his jacket and says, tie me to the scaffold. I'll take it for her. So that's substitution. Yeah. He substitutes himself in that place and he can do so because he is the one who made the law. Mm. Okay, so this is an illustration of Jesus substituting himself in our place 
because he is the one who made the law and he is the one who pronounced the penalty, he can do that. If the governor had said to one of his soldiers over there, you know, you over there, you go and take it in place of my mother, that wouldn't have worked. If Jesus had said to one of the angels, you're a perfect person, you go and die in, uh, in place of those human beings down there, that wouldn't have worked because the angel didn't make the law, he didn't make the penalty. Mm. Okay, so that's an illustration of how penal substitution works. Uh, is penal substitution uh, biblical? Definitely it is. Um, is it the entire story of the atonement? No, there's a whole lot more to it than that, and it's far deeper than that. It is one aspect of what Jesus has done for us in atoning for our sins and one of the most important aspects. The Bible uses the word rather than penal substitution. The Bible uses the word redeem or redemption. And so to understand that word, uh, that word is a word that is applied when something has been lost and you buy it back. Okay, so the New Testament is full of examples. Uh, the Bible is full of examples, but the New Testament in particular is full of examples. Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and bought his people back, redeemed his people. Um, Galatians 3.13, Christ has bought us back from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Mm. Uh, so redeemed us. First Peter 1 verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed, bought back, paid for, with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. And of course, this is a, a song that, uh, a, 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 part of a song, but also part of a theme that runs right the way through the book of Revelation Revelation 5, verse 9, Revelation 14, verse 3, Revelation 14, verse 4. You know, it's central to the three angels' messages. You know, the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth, these were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. They were bought back, they were paid for. By Jesus, who paid the penalty that they were required to pay. The Bible says the wages, the payment for sin, is death. Jesus paid that penalty so that we could go through it, go free. He was our substitute. He paid that in our place. That is substitution right there. There's a major theme of the New Testament. You can't read the New Testament without finding the New Testament saturated in this. Um, in this whole theme right here. Uh, now, the big question is, okay, who gets paid? Mm. Is God paying Satan for this? Or is God paying the Father? Or is Jesus paying the Father? You know, who's, who's getting paid here? And the answer to that, and this is where a lot of people get hung up because like, well, he can't be paying the Father and he can't be paying Satan. Neither of those are going to work. The answer is very, very simple. It is the law. It is the law that it is demanding payment because it is the law that says the wages of sin is death. And it is the demands of the law that were met when Jesus died on Calvary, not the demands of you know Satan or of the Father or anything like that. It's the demands of the law. Did God make the law? Of course God made the law. Uh, but that is where the payment is going when Jesus dies on our behalf. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.